Well, every study that I've ever seen that has to do with the Vietnam War and particularly our involvement in the, as the United States in that war has pointed out one characteristic of that particular war, and that is the extreme difficulty that we had as uh, American forces to identify the enemy. I mean, we were fighting against the North Vietnamese on the side of the South Vietnamese, and uh, there's not a very clear difference. There is no clear difference just by looking at the Vietnamese, whether they're from the North or the South. You got that dynamic involved. But more importantly, the North Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, were incredibly talented when it came to hiding in the jungles and uh, very difficult to find them, to see them, and our soldiers would be heading in a particular direction, and then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, they were attacked from, from the trees and the jungles and, and, and all underbrush and everywhere else. And, and not, to, not only that, but they were also so unscrupulous as to use children, Vietnamese children, to lure um, American soldiers and uh, bring them into an ambush, uh, sometimes even using the children and, and allowing them to be killed in the process. And as a result of that dynamic of, of an inability to know the enemy and identify the enemy, we made, as a, as a, in our military, we made a lot of mistakes, some of them very, very tragic mistakes. But it brings home that simple point and that simple truth. In any battle, you must know your enemy. So here we are at the end of Ephesians, and uh, in this chapter, chapter 6, Paul is wrapping things up, and he's telling us that we need to equip ourselves with this full armor of God, but that's only part of it. It's all, it only does so much to be equipped with the armor of God if we don't know who the enemy is. So Paul takes a moment here in uh, verses 11 and 12 to identify for us our enemy and some other things about him that we just simply need to know if we're going to be able to stand and to withstand in the evil day. It is vitally important that you know your enemy. So to know your enemy, you, you first of all need to identify who he is. So at the end of verse 11, Paul says, uh, speaks of him as the devil. We have to deal with the wiles of the devil. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time and have been involved in your Bible in any length of time, you know that there are a variety of names or descriptors that are attached to this individual, the devil. And the devil is indeed just one of many biblical names. You could almost, you could almost uh, think of him as having a a multiple personality disorder. He's definitely disordered, that is for sure. But these names and descriptors all have some, give us some insight into something of his nature. So he's called the devil, and that word means the slanderer or the false accuser. So every time, uh, you, you know, we, we prayed this morning in, in our prayer that you know, every one of us has to be honest enough to confess that we have sinned. And 
probably, certainly even today in some way or another. And, and yet what the devil does is he takes that knowledge and he wants to slander you and falsely accuse you, especially after you have already dealt with that sin. I mean, you know the Scripture that we, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know that. And the, the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, and you go to the Lord and you confess that sin. You own up to it. You forsake that sin. It's done. It's forgotten. It's thrown away. And how often do you find the devil coming at you a little while later and say, you are such a scoundrel. Look at what you've done. You did this again, whatever. You know, this is the character of the devil, the slanderer. He's also called Satan. And it's a name that simply means an opponent, an adversary. Um, corollary to that is what Paul tell, or what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, and that's not the word Satan, but it's the same idea. Your adversary, the devil. The devil is the adversary. The one who is a false accuser and a slanderer is also your opponent. He's called the wicked one, which has a lot to do with uh, his moral character. He's called in the book of Revelation, Abaddon or Apollyon, and that name means the destroyer. Who do you think is behind the destruction going on in Portland? Who do you think is behind that? You say, well, Antifa. Yeah. Who's behind Antifa that's causing this kind of destruction? The destroyer. He loves to destroy. Abaddon, Apollyon. Revelation 12 calls him the dragon, the ancient serpent. Now that, of course, is taking you all the way back. The book of Revelation, verse, uh, chapter 12, uh, calling the devil, the wicked one, your enemy, calling him the dragon, the, the, uh, the ancient serpent, is taking you all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He's called in Revelation 12, the deceiver of the whole world. The deceiver of the whole world. He's called your enemy. He's called the evil one, corresponding to the wicked one. Jesus calls him a murderer, a liar, the father of lies. He's called the God of this age, the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's called the tempter. This is your enemy. This is who he is. And as your enemy, he has, a, he has just a few basic, timeless objectives, objectives that he is not going to let go of. One of them we're told of in uh, the book of Isaiah, in uh, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, which is referencing Lucifer, which is another name that's ascribed to him. But uh, he wants to displace God. His objective is to displace God from his throne. You remember that passage, Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14? He says, for the, the, the Scripture says, Thou hast said, speaking of Lucifer in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the, 
above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And it was because of that attempt to usurp the throne of God that he, of course, was cast out of heaven altogether. And uh, this is why it says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. But even though he was cast out, he never gave up that objective. He would still love to displace God from his throne. He also has as his objective, one of his, obje one of his four objectives that I want to highlight, the, um, the destruction of Christ. He would love to destroy Christ. So in Revelation chapter 12, I mentioned to it earlier, uh, we read this, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars, speaking of Israel. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, pain to be delivered, speaking of the birth of Christ. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. What is Satan wanting to do at the birth of Christ? Even at Herod's decree, right? kill all those little infants under age of two, and we'll destroy that child. This was Satan's objective, to, to destroy Christ. So this is why, and this explains why, uh, in, the, um, in the plethora of religions and churches, you have churches that are religious places that minimize and say nothing, if anything, of Christ, not much, if anything, of Christ, and certainly don't say anything of His atoning, vicarious work on the cross. Why? Because Satan, our enemy, has been so effective in places of that kind to destroy the, the message of Christ and to take Christ off of the throne in such places. He also has, as a third objective, the damning of souls. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Why? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The wicked one knows, the God of this world who blinds eyes and minds, he knows that if those eyes are opened and if those minds can perceive, then they will receive the gospel. And he does his work of blinding those eyes and the, with the goal, the objective of damning those souls with him in that eternal lake of fire. And then the enemy has as one of his objectives the defeating of Christians. I mentioned earlier 1 Peter 5.8, Peter warns us, he says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about, prowls about, 
seeking whom he may devour. And this is exactly what he's doing in your life and mine, constantly looking for an opportunity to pounce. All right, so that's, who his, that's what his names are. We've talked about his names. He has some basic objectives, and he has not given up on any of those objectives through the millennia. But you also, we also need to realize that he is a personal spiritual foe, and he's not a physical one. He's a personal foe in the sense that the devil is a person. Now, a person doesn't have to have a body. You understand that, right? Personhood is defined by, by intellect, by volition, by will. You see, the devil is a personal being. The devil is not like the electric current running through this building, just a force, just a power. And when the right switch is turned on, then that power is activated. No, the devil is a personal being. He communicates. He actively, volitionally, willfully uh, does things to try to meet his objectives. But he's a spiritual foe. He's not a physical. This is why Paul says in verse 12 in our text that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He's not a physical foe. Now, by the way, let's also understand this, that our enemy is, our enemy is not primarily the tools that the devil uses. He uses flesh and blood, right? I mean, again, Apollyon, the destroyer, is highly involved in the city of Portland, Oregon, and he has a bunch of tools that he is using to facilitate that and to keep it, keep it going and to aggravate it all the more, Apollyon, the destroyer. But what we, what we need to understand in our, I mean, we don't we don't appreciate in the least bit what the tools are doing. But what we need to understand is that the people who are doing the destroying are tools, instruments in the hands of Apollyon. I guess the best way I've tried to, tried to think about uh, and understand this so that I can better understand what's going on in some of these places, not only in Portland, but in Chicago and elsewhere. It's kind of like if we get, if we misunderstand this and we treat people in our thinking, we treat the tools as the enemy and not realize that the tools are instruments in the hands of the enemy, then we're making the same mistake in our spiritual understanding and thinking that those who, who call for the um, complete restriction of guns and the abolishment of guns, they make the same mistake. They say, guns kill people. No, no, people kill people. Guns are instruments in the hands of wicked people who commit the murder. So it's not the instrument, the gun, that's the problem. It's the people. You deal with the people. And the people who, deal, who use guns in a way to murder and maim are people who are also instruments in the hands of the enemy. So he's a spiritual foe and not, not a physical one. But then let's also understand this. 
that our enemy is a defeated foe. He is a defeated foe. He's a defeated foe, but he is still a defeated foe who is fighting intensely hard. It's kind of like, I read one commentator who illustrated it this way, it's kind of like um, what happened after June 6, 1944. Many of you know right away. Okay, yeah, yeah, D-Day. D-Day, invasion of Normandy, yeah. With the success of the Allied invasion of the coast of France on on D-Day, the success of D-Day marked the doom of Germany. Germany was, after that success, a defeated foe. Now, they didn't give up, did they? It, It wasn't until May 25th, 1945, that Germany finally surrendered and said, uncle. All during those intervening months, there were battles that were going on. There were lives that were lost. There was some fierce, intense fighting that was happening. But for all practical purposes, Germany was a defeated foe. Now, that analogy falls down, of course, because things could have happened in the meantime that maybe might have turned things, you know. But, but that's not the way it is with our defeated foe. The wicked one was defeated by Christ. In John chapter 12, when Jesus was in the last uh, few days of his life before the crucifixion, in John 12, verse uh, 31, Jesus says this. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Speaking of the coming crucifixion, he says, now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He's to be defeated. Where? Where? Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians, this is one of those companion letters to Ephesians, in Colossians 3.15, or Colossians, uh, Colossians 3, um, yeah, Colossians 3.15, he says, um, nope, that's not the right passage, Colossians 2.15, he says that Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. At the cross, Jesus triumphed over our foe. He's a defeated foe, but there's still fighting that's going on, isn't there? This was typified in uh, ancient Israel. Remember, um, in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua chapter 1, children of Israel about to go into uh, the land of promise, and the Lord tells them in verses 2 and 3, He tells Joshua, He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. Then listen, listen to what he says. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given to you, as I said unto Moses. So the Lord promises to Israel here, judicially, that Canaan is defeated. He's already given Canaan into the hand of Israel. And yet, yet a few verses later, We read in verse 14, at the end of the verse, he says, You shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valor, and help them, 
until the Lord have given your brethren rest as he hath given to you. And he's, uh, this is uh, Joshua speaking to the two and a half tribes that were to stay on the east side of the Jordan. We're, we're going to have their inheritance there. He says, you're, you're, you're going to cross over this Jordan with us. You're going to cross over armed, and we're all going to go into battle against this foe that is judicially defeated. All right, this is your enemy. This is your enemy. You need to identify him. You need to know who he is. He is a defeated foe, but he is still fighting relentlessly. And not only do you need to identify who he is, you also need to identify his tactics. So back in our text in in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, uh, Paul tells us we need to stand against the wiles of the devil. Um, the, the Greek word there is actually one you would pick up. It's methodeia, methods, the methods. Now, in that context, and the, the word itself has the connotation of um, schemes and craft and deception. This is, this is the tactic of our enemy. It was his very first tactic, the very first approach that he took in Genesis chapter 3. He didn't come out to to Eve in Genesis 3 in the form of a wicked, vile wretch, did he? Came as a a harmless serpent. I know some of you are saying, a harmless serpent. Are you kidding me? There is no such thing. A garter snake isn't a harmless serpent. Uh, you, You hate them so greatly. I get that. But No, I mean, this obviously was of no concern to Eve, and the devil knew it. And what did he do? How did he approach her? Did he tell her, hey, listen, I'll tell you what, if you eat this fruit, it's going to happen just as God said. It's it's great stuff to look at, isn't it? But you know what? It's going to kill you. So why don't you go ahead and eat it? No, you you, you know the story. The, The devil's tactics are tactics of imitation. He imitates something else that seems to be so harmless. He distorts and twists the truth. Another thing he does, just like as he did in the garden, he distracts away from God's good gifts and the blessings that he abundantly gives to you so that you focus instead on your limitations, on what you can't have, on what is off limits. And then, of course, he induces all kinds of questioning of God himself, of his revelation. These are the wiles. You need to identify who your enemy is. You need to identify his tactics. Then let's also take a moment and identify his kingdom, his realm. That is... uh, you know, in, in any war, you, you, you need to know what nation is it that we're fighting against, you know? In the Vietnam War, we, we, we weren't fighting against South Vietnam, we were fighting against North Vietnam. All right, you need to identify the realm that uh, is involved in this enemy's, under this enemy's control. I would have you note, first of all, it's a spiritual realm. So the end of verse 12 he says we, uh, we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. That word high places uh, is interesting because you see it in other spots here in, in the book of Ephesians. 
Back in chapter 1, it's translated in the heavenly places, in the heavenlies. This is a, a general reference to the spiritual realm. There's a spiritual realm over which, uh, over which God is in complete control and where Christ is and where our inheritance lies and where we sit with Christ in the heavenlies. The spiritual realm also is the realm in which uh, Satan has his area of, uh, of domain, if you will. But his kingdom encompasses some things that we need to be aware of. His kingdom encompasses, first of all, the mass of unregenerate people. Who is in his kingdom? Back in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. But then listen to what he says. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. Now listen, according to the prince of the power of the air that now works in the, now works in the children of disobedience. So the kingdom of the wicked one is this spiritual realm that encompasses the mass of unregenerate people, the children of disobedience. But his realm also encompasses certain aspects of human government. Remember in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, Luke tells us, uh, it's, it's recorded for us in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, and in Luke's uh, account, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read this, that the devil takes Jesus up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power, authority will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give it. Now, there's a great deal of that that we don't understand and we can't quite comprehend. And one thing, by the way, as an aside, that we always must keep in mind that the devil never gets one over on God. Now, Martin Luther made the, made the point that the devil is God's devil. He never is able to do his thing without the without the permission granted by the sovereign one, uh, our God. And that's very clear in the book of Job. But here the devil is pointing out all these kingdoms of the earth. He's showing them to, to Jesus. And he's telling Jesus, I'll give you these kingdoms. So there is some sense in which uh, certain aspects of human government are encompassed in the realm of our enemy. And then his kingdom also encompasses religion and certain religious meeting places. Uh, Wednesday night we, we uh, read the letter to the church at, uh, at, um, in, in Revelation 2 at Smyrna. And in verse 9, uh, listen to what Jesus says to this church. He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know, listen, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So there is a, there is again, there is a, 
uh, in, in Satan, our enemy's kingdom, his kingdom encompasses certain religions, certain elements of religion, certain religious groups and entities, and even their places of worship. He has the synagogue of Satan. And that religion of our enemy incorporates a false gospel. Remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 when he was so astounded that the Galatians were so easily removed to another gospel, which wasn't the true gospel, but it was another gospel. And anybody, he says, who would bring that other gospel is to be damned. It's damnable stuff as it comes from the wicked one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11... 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, the enemy in his kingdom has his ministers of religion. Verses 11, verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, he says, uh, verse 13, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves. Remember the imitation tactic of, uh, of the devil? Transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. He has his ministers. He has his doctrines, his teachings. Paul writes of this in 1 Timothy 4, where he talks about the doctrines of, uh, of devils. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 20, the devil's religion includes worship. Uh, Paul talks about um, offering, um, eating meat offered to idols as, um, as an offering unto demons. And he says, I don't, you, you don't want to have any participation in that. The worship of the wicked one involved. So, so, so think about this. Think about this. When you see these images, especially predominantly in uh, some of the Asian countries, the Southeast Asian and so forth countries, where, and, and we saw this when all over the place, when we were in uh, Singapore and Malaysia, the, uh, these little shrines, and in the box of the shrine, there is a Buddha, and uh, next to that Buddha, there are these different offerings of fr mostly fruit and that kind of thing. Those, that, that's the devil's religion. Those are offerings that are offered up to one of the devil's false gods. And there are, of course, many, many more. And so our wicked enemy, the devil, and all his various names and his schemes and his, his tactics, he has a kingdom. It's a, spirit, it's a spiritual realm, but it shows itself up in our physical realm, in all of these different capacities. But now look at verse 12 in our text, Ephesians 6. And we, ne we need to also identify not only who our enemy is, his tactics and his kingdom, we also need to identify his standing army, his standing army. Here's the thing, and we, we must keep this in mind when we think about the enemy. The devil is not God. He is not a God. The devil is a created being, just like any of the other angels are created beings. And therefore, all right, now get this, understand this. The devil is not 
omniscient. He doesn't know everything. The devil is not omnipotent. He does not have all power. The devil is not omniscient. He does not know everything. So he has to have an army to do his bidding. Now, he's at the head of it, to be sure. But his army does his bidding to help him try to reach his objective, his objectives. And so we can think of what Paul writes here in verse 12 as four ranks in, um, in, in Satan's army. The first is the rank of principalities. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Literally, that word means chief ones, chief ones. These would be leaders of divisions. So think of it as, um, you know, Satan has his fallen angels that have gone with him and have gone to his side. And they, uh, divide, they're divided up, perhaps, into multiple divisions of, of, of uh, demonic forces. And over those divisions, there are the chief ones, the principalities. And I, I think if, if you look at Scripture as a whole and some other places, you, maybe these chief ones are, are like we, we hear of um, the angel that told Daniel in Daniel chapter, 20, uh, Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, he spoke of being opposed by the prince of Persia. He wasn't talking about the human prince. He was talking about a spiritual ruler, chief one of Persia. And he said, after the prince of Persia, there will come opposition by the prince of Grecia or Greece. So you think about this. Think about this. You look at our world, and there are various... There, there is a variety, or a slight, we could call it a scale of hostility toward any kind of righteousness, um, God's righteousness, toward Christ, toward the gospel, toward God, the God of the Bible. Each of those countries and the level of their opposition may very much have to do with the effectiveness that God has allowed the prince of that country, that nation, to have in the carrying out of his responsibilities. And so, therefore, we have, um, we have historical records, for example, of the Armenian genocide, the murder of a, a couple of million of Armenian Christians. What was behind that? The prince of that Islamic country. Or we have in our current, in our current world, we have Islamic nations that have made it a death penalty crime to convert to Christianity. How do they get such power? How is such thing possible? The prince of those nations uses the instruments, the tools, the human instruments to see to it that such laws are enacted. And that's why Paul tells us in, tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
why, this is why we need to pray for those who are in authority over us, for our rulers, for any governors, and for all who are in authority over us. Why? So that we, believers, followers of Christ, may lead a quiet and peaceable life because God would have people to be converted. And this is a terribly difficult, challenging thing to take place in a country where it is a criminal offense, it's a capital offense to renounce Islam and to become a follower of Jesus. One commentator wrote this, he says, evidently one of the chief purposes of these principalities during the present age is to close national doors to missionary activity. Principalities. Then there are powers. Word, is, uh, word means authorities. Authorities. These would be demonic individuals who have responsibility delegated to them, and they have the authority to act independently with that responsibility, uh, and they can act independently within certain boundaries or certain limitations. And, and Satan has to do this. He has to give this kind of authority to these underlings because he can't be everywhere. He can't know everything that's going on. He can't make all the decisions uh, all around the world at any given moment in time. So he has these authorities scattered throughout the world making decisions for him. Again, this same commentary, William Good, Good is his name. He said, because these things, these beings are not holy, H-O-L-Y, holy and devoted as the angels of God, their imperfections, now watch, this gives you some insight into our world. Their imperfections may be manifested in rivalry and or errors in judgment. So what that does is it helps us understand uh, all the different reactions to, in, in countries around the world to identical situations, different political and governmental philosophies, socialism, secularism, atheistic communism, religious totalitarianism, all these different forms of government and expressions of power and control in different nations all over the world. How is it, if, if Satan is controlling, why, why are there so many differences? Well, because Satan isn't directly involved in all of these places. He has his minions who he has given authority to exercise their responsibility in their places to do as they will. And sometimes they end up killing each other off in the process. The next class of uh, warriors in Satan's army are the world rulers of the darkness. The world rulers of the darkness. He says we wrestle against uh, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. I would suggest that this group and his army are those who concentrate their efforts in the realm of ethics and morals. Ethics and morals. So you have some that are some of these rulers that may have more focus on uh, you know, political power and military power and things like that. These, these individuals, their focus is more on the matter of ethics and morals. Again, William Goode, he wrote this, his commentary in 1967, and I found fascinating what he wrote 
in this particular juncture. Listen to what he said. He said, the USA, 1967 now, think about it, 1967, what was going on in 1967? Okay, the Vietnam War was going on and you had all kinds of protests related to that. You had rioting in the streets and you had college campuses being, uh, you know, sit-ins on college campuses. You got all that kind of stuff going on. But you also had the sexual revolution, the free love culture. Um, I'm trying to remember if 1967 was the summer, of, the summer of love in San Francisco. It wasn't 67, 69. It was anyway, it was back in that era. But listen to what he said. He said, the USA has been, quote, the arsenal of the gospel for a full generation or more. However, socialism coupled with moral degradation will soon obliterate this effectiveness unless the tide is reversed. The same laxity with regard to human behavior which fosters moral delinquency provides the climate in which socialistic theories of government flourish. Is this 2020 America or what? He says these two handmaids, socialistic theories of government and moral laxity, these two handmaids are both the children of the devil. They're the children of the devil. And they are put into place and they are expanded and they are propagated by the world rulers of the darkness. And then there's one more, one more group of soldiers in Satan's army. They are the wicked spirits in the heavenly realm. It says we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places or in the heavenlies. I think of this group as being those who instigate corruption in the realms, in the realm of ideas. They instigate the corruption in the realm of ideas, and then they propagate that, those corrupt ideas. They instigate corrupt ideas and propagate those ideas. So, for example, um, this would be the, the corrupt uh, worldviews and, uh, and ideas that are expressed in, like, the popular culture. 1967 when William Goode wrote his commentary and he talked about the moral laxity and uh, socialistic theories of government, in 1967, he could not possibly have known that in 2020, not only would homosexuality be mainstream, but the marriage of homosexuals and lesbians would be fully accepted in our nation, and that there would be a welcoming a welcoming of the idea of transgenderism and on and on we can go with these ideas all right these are ideas these are ideas that got floated out there and 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 started you started hearing about this maybe people who are of the same sex who love each other maybe they should be allowed to have the same rights as married people maybe they should have marriages they should then it's they should have marriages and then it's, it's Supreme Court 
justices in states like Vermont and Hawaii who are saying that the civil uh, laws that do not recognize same-sex marriages are unconstitutional. And those kinds of civil laws start dropping in states all over the country. And while that's going on, at the same time, you've got cultural propagation of these ideas, even to the extent that on primetime television, you end up seeing, on primetime television, you end up having guys kissing each other and women kissing each other, not pecks on the cheeks like women tend to do in some places, but full-on intimate making out. And it has even degenerated and been become propagated in Disney productions, for crying out loud, that used to be thought of as wholesome family fare. Where does this come from? How does this happen? How do such ideas get germinated and then propagated before they have completely infiltrated a society by the wicked spirits in the heavenly and spiritual realm? It's not only those cultural expressions of ideas and worldviews, but I think it's also, they're also behind the corruption of biblical truth. False teachers, pagan religions, cults, atheism, surprisingly even, and all other religious isms that either supplant or suppress the truth and blind men to it. Satan uses this group in his army, the wicked spirits in the spiritual realm to corrupt even biblical truth. All right, so look, when your eyes are open to the character of your enemy and you realize the devious nature of his work, the extent of his kingdom, his diversified global army, it would be easy, very easy, and understandable, very understandable, to respond as Elisha's servant. Remember him? Elisha and his servant were in Dothan, and at night the Syrian army came to Dothan and surrounded the city of Dothan, and they wanted to destroy it, and Elisha the prophet, and Elisha's servant looks out the window in the morning, and he sees this incredible host of Syrian forces. And he cries out to Elisha, and he says, Alas, what shall we do? Now you hear about your enemy, and you understand what he's like, and his tactics, and his global reach and effectiveness. It's understandable that you would cry out, Alas, what shall we do? Ah, remember what Elisha replied. Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So as you put on your armor, know your enemy, know your enemy, but remember, he's a defeated foe. Let's pray. So our Father and our God, it so oftentimes doesn't feel like it, 
doesn't look like it. It doesn't seem like it. And we are so prone to cry out, alas, what shall we do? Father, your word gives us some insight today. We're to put on the whole armor of God and we're to identify our enemy. We're to know our enemy. And one thing that we can know of him is that he is a defeated foe. May we march forward in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.